0: There's a very peculiar-looking barn that sits on an old farm in Caledon, Ontario. Not another one like it in the entire region, only a handful in the entire country. Situated atop an ancient foundation of carefully placed stones, vertical boards and battens milled 130 years ago from Canadian lumber make up the building's striking yet mysterious exterior. But it's not the stones or old wood that would catch your eye. It's the strange shape, a perfect octagon. Although there were a number of practical and agricultural reasons for the farmer to build his barn this way, such as increased floor space and cheaper construction costs, it's said the farmer who built it had another reason as well, a spiritual reason. Because in a building with no sharp corners, there was nowhere for the devil to hide. If only that farmer had been right. Join me now as we examine one of Canada's most twisted and notorious criminals. Some called him the house hermit. Others called him the cottage killer. You'll hear the story of a sadistic murderer and serial rapist who terrorized Ontario's cottage country and led police on a trail of horror all the way to the Pacific coast. In 1991, a unique octagonal barn in Ontario caught the eye of two antique dealers. Two men always on the lookout for interesting acquisitions, scouting for treasure among items many people would otherwise just throw away. The two men were David Snow and Darris Shaw. David, an owner of a store in the town of Orangeville, Ontario, called simply Timeless Antiques, and Darris, his business partner. For Daris, it was always about the business, While for David, antiques were more than just a career or a means to an end. They were his obsession. The barn David had his sights on was located on a 50-acre property alongside a farmhouse in Caledon, Ontario. A countryside laden with rolling hills, farmland, and massive estates with gated entryways. The octagonal barn was the last of its kind, unique and valuable, And David Snow knew it. So David and Daris drove up to the farm in hopes of introducing themselves to the owners. When they arrived at the farmhouse, they met 54-year-old Ian Blackburn, a real estate broker, and his wife, 49-year-old Nancy Blackburn, a public health nurse who volunteered in her free time with the unhoused population in Toronto. By that point... The Blackburns had been married for almost 25 years and were enjoying their getaways up to the property that had been passed down to them by Ian's father. The farm next door had been passed down to Ian's sister. It couldn't have been a more ideal situation. A farm with a unique barn in a picturesque peaceful location only about an hour away from where they lived and worked in downtown Toronto. But as perfect as Kaladin sounds, it was no stranger to mysterious crimes and vanishings. Dating as far back as 1977, there was as many as 10 unsolved vanishings and slains in the Kaladin Albion Hills area. Still, it was a small village and people felt safe there, safe enough for the Blackburns to allow two antique dealers, two complete strangers, into their home. Unknowingly, The Blackburns may as well have invited the devil inside. When David Snow asked for a tour from the aging couple, Ian and Nancy agreed, showing them the spacious interior of the octagonal barn. David's interest in the property was mostly the barn itself. His plan was to find a buyer so the barn could be moved off-site and reconstructed. He'd done similar deals in the past. Although the Blackburns were actually interested in David's proposition, ultimately, he failed to make the deal come together. And it wasn't his first failure in the business world of antiques. In fact, David had become a bit of a lousy business partner to Daris, often failing to show up for work without any notice, even disappearing for weeks at a time. From the beginning, Daris' wife, Allison, found David unsettling in a way she couldn't quite put her finger on. He just made her uneasy. It didn't help that David's pathological fear of driving meant he relied on them to chauffeur him around everywhere. It also didn't help that David was notorious for having incredibly poor hygiene with his body odor alone, making him difficult to be around. And then there was his appearance, which was gangly and perpetually disheveled. Perhaps if David had had a winning personality, the foul body odor and unkept appearance could have been overlooked, but that wasn't the case. David was unreliable and struggled to get along with practically everyone, a personality trait that had followed him since childhood. Growing up, David had been a difficult and cruel child who often lashed out at both his mother and sister, developing into a difficult and socially isolated man. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly why he turned out the way he did. His father died when he was young. His mother dealt with depression. Was it a case of nature versus nurture? It's difficult to say. Not long after failing to make the barn deal come together, David was forced to close down his antique shop to financial hardships, and in the fall of 1991, David disappeared on Darius again. But this time, he vanished for good, leaving Darius and his wife Allison stuck with over 2,000 in debts. But David Snow wasn't the only person to go missing that season. Not long after David went off the radar, another antique dealer, a Toronto woman named Caroline Case, also disappeared. Eventually, Her vehicle was located down a ditch in Caledon in early October, but Caroline was never seen or heard from again. Only about an hour outside of downtown Toronto, Caledon back then was known in Canada as Cottage Country, a place where city folk owned small holiday homes or hobby farms like the Blackburns, a great destination for Torontonians to experience a relaxing getaway from the city life without the expense of travel. One of the downsides of having a property vacant at different times of the year is that it's not entirely uncommon for a homeowner to return to their cottage only to find that it's been broken into. Most of the time, it amounts to little more than petty theft or minor vandalization. But in the winter after David Snow went missing in 1991, a creepy legend was born in that same Caledon area. A thief who would break into vacation homes, set up camp for sometimes weeks at a time, and then move on to the next property. Locals referred to him as the house hermit, an oddly feral sort of boogeyman. But this creepy Goldilocks was doing more than eating porridge and sleeping in beds. He was leaving gifts behind, gifts that became his unique and disturbing calling card. Among the wrappers and discarded tea bags that showed the police he'd been staining these cottages for some time, the house hermit also left behind pornographic magazines and handwritten lists of World War II military equipment with strange values assigned to each piece of equipment, almost as if he was inventing or playing some sort of role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons. But that wasn't the worst of it. The house hermit had been collecting his urine in plastic bottles, as well as carefully wrapping his feces in newspaper, like a treasured present, leaving it all behind. That winter, while the house hermit violated the home security of the Kaladin community, the family of Caroline Case sought answers. By that point, the mother of three had been missing for months, with no one having a clue where she was. Caroline had called one of her daughters before ending her day at the antique shop she owned the previous October. she called to let her know she was on her way home, but she never arrived. When her station wagon was discovered upside down in a ditch, the inside blood spattered and dirty, the headrests torn from the seats, it all painted a very grim picture of what might have happened. The stress of it all caused Caroline's mother, who'd previously been healthy, to become deathly sick, prompting her to seek out help from fortune-tellers, desperate for answers. One told her that Caroline would come home in February of 1992, and it was this hope that kept her mom going, until February came and went, and Caroline never came home. The next month, Caroline's mother died, having spent her last months on Earth becoming increasingly despondent, sick, confused, and unable to sleep, never having found any resolution or peace. On March 18, 1992, the ongoing saga of the house hermit took a violent turn when the Appletons, an elderly couple from Toronto, decided to visit their cottage about an hour away from Caledon. When they arrived, the house hermit was waiting, and he was armed, but this time, Goldilocks had no intention of running away. After robbing the elderly couple, the house hermit forced them at gunpoint back into their vehicle and ordered Mr. Appleton to drive all three of them back to their home in Toronto. Halfway to the destination, the house hermit demanded Mr. Appleton to pull over, but he unexpectedly refused. Mr. Appleton said, if you're gonna kill us, do it right here, right now. Not likely the reaction the house hermit had been hoping for. Nevertheless, he backed down and continued driving toward the city. When they finally reached Toronto, Mr. Appleton stopped the car at a crowded intersection. And at that moment, the house hermit darted out of the car, leaving the couple alive and mostly unharmed. What the house hermit didn't realize was that he left behind a set of fingerprints. There was also something else he left behind, a permanent imprint on the Appleton's minds of what their abductor looked like, which they used to help a police artist render a sketch of the man, a disheveled, unkempt man with a serpentine neck. The man in the Appleton's sketch was David Snow, but nobody knew it at the time. After his encounter with the Appletons, David returned to his old stomping grounds near Caledon, returning to a property he was already very familiar with. Using a flathead screwdriver, he pried open the back window of a farmhouse next to an octagonal barn. David Snow, the house hermit, had returned to the Blackburns. On April 7, 1992, a Tuesday, Ian Blackburn decided to take a break from his real estate business and drive his Cadillac to spend the day at the family farmhouse. There'd been a plumbing issue worrying him, and he and his wife Nancy had plans to join an annual maple syrup sugaring-off party the upcoming weekend. But when he turned onto the driveway of his farmhouse, a familiar but unexpected face was waiting for him, David Snow. Somehow David managed to get Ian inside the farmhouse, leaving the Cadillac parked crookedly in the driveway. Once again, David bound Ian at the wrists and knees, then bashed him repeatedly across the face with the muzzle of a gun. But Ian wasn't David's true target. He simply had access to what David really wanted. The woman who'd helped give David the tour of the octagonal barn so many months before, Nancy. That afternoon... Nancy finished work and returned home to find Ian gone, which was unexpected. When she called around to find out where he might be and still couldn't locate him, she grew worried, and then she heard the phone ring. When Nancy answered that fateful phone call, whatever or whoever she heard on the other side of the line convinced Nancy to drive her blue Chevy out to Caledon. At some point after arriving at the farmhouse, Nancy was struck with blunt force to the left side of her head, and then restrained with wire and rope. David then bound Nancy in such a way that he could carry her body around like a suitcase. In the end, David sexually assaulted Nancy, and then strangled her to death with a rope. After killing Ian's wife and stuffing her into the trunk of the couple Chevy, David forced Ian into the driver's seat, still bound but with the ropes loose enough, he could still drive. David then forced Ian to drive them back to the Blackburns' home in Toronto. After they arrived, David killed Ian as well, asphyxiating him by placing a bag over his head and strangling him to death. David then popped the trunk and placed Ian's deceased body next to Nancy's. There they laid, together again, sharing one final space. Next, David raided the Blackburns' house for anything that might appeal to him, including one of Ian's photography cameras. All he left behind of himself was some blood on a tissue in Nancy's car, which meant that maybe, just maybe, one of the Blackburns had managed to put up some kind of a fight. The very next morning, David bought a one way ticket on a train to Vancouver. He was done with Kaladin with Toronto, but his brutal crime spree was far from over. The next day, Nancy didn't show up for work. In Caledon at the Blackburns farm, Ian's Cadillac remained parked in the driveway for days, but no sign of Ian. Orville Osborne, the owner of the next-door property, Ian and Nancy's brother-in-law kept a worried eye on the vehicle. It just wasn't the way Ian normally parked. He usually parked closer to the cottage, and any calls he made to the couple went unanswered. After a few days without being able to connect with the Blackburns, Orville used his key to enter their cottage, but nothing appeared out of place, just a few odds and ends scattered about. It wasn't until the couple missed showing up at the annual sugaring-off party that weekend that Orville knew for sure something had to be very wrong. That's when he asked his son, Jamie, to check on the Blackburns' home in Toronto. When Jamie arrived at the Blackburns' home, Nancy's blue Chevrolet waited as quiet as a tomb in the driveway. At the front door, several days' worth of mail had accumulated. When Jamie first let himself inside, everything appeared in order until he started walking around. Nancy's purse was sitting open on her bed and the cat was locked in the basement, fending for itself without food or water. Back outside, Jamie looked around the Chevy for signs of where the couple may have gone. In the front seat, he saw a tissue with blood on it, but nothing else revealing. When Jamie used a spare key to unlock the trunk of the car, he went numb with shock. There inside were the bodies of his aunt and uncle, Days worth of decomposition setting in, the Blackburns had finally been found. As news of Ian and Nancy's mysterious murders hit the papers, the media dubbed the murderer the cottage killer. But when police investigated the Blackburns' Toronto home, they came up nearly empty-handed. The farmhouse yielded very little evidence also, except for two drops of blood that turned out to be Nancy's. But according to a behavioral investigator, the absence of evidence was a kind of evidence itself. The cottage killer had planned everything with confidence. He was very well organized. Everything he'd done, he'd done with a clear head, indicating frighteningly a sick sense of pride. Investigators concluded that this had been no crime of passion. David had left behind a perfectly anonymous crime scene except for one very specific behavior that would link him to the crime. About 100 meters away from the farmhouse, police discovered a familiar calling card, a bag filled with human feces wrapped meticulously in newspaper. They also found more of his lists, small block letters written neatly in even columns, pages and pages of military equipment from World War II. Mixed in with the disgusting find were also items that had gone missing from previous properties broken into by the house hermit. This was the moment police realized that the house hermit and the cottage killer were the same guy. Only question remained, who was the man behind these crimes? After three months without generating any substantial leads, Police decided to release information to the public, a description of the house hermit, along with a sketch made by the Appletons, and a photograph of one of the handwritten lists the house hermit had left behind, which proved to be the defining move in solving the murders of the Blackburns. Alison Shaw, wife of Dara Shaw, David's ex-business partner, opened up a newspaper one day to see all the evidence the police had now made public and she couldn't believe her eyes. She knew the face, she knew the handwriting, and she'd seen lists like that before. It was the same man she'd been putting up with for years. Following the lead, police discovered that David Snow's fingerprints were already on file from a previous case, and these fingerprints proved that David Snow was indeed the house hermit they'd been looking for. But could they prove he was also the cottage killer? Police then performed a search on David's Orangeville home, and the puzzle pieces began fitting into place. Bizarrely, it seemed as though David had lived like a hermit in his own home as well. He'd camped out in his own attic, slept there, while he used the rest of his house as storage for his obsessions, car parts, antiques, numerous books on the subject of World War II military equipment. He treated pornography much like his other obsessions, clipping out photos of women's body parts, organizing them, classifying collections based on body part names. There were also other things in his attic that police didn't understand at the time. One of them was a hand-drawn map of the Caledon area that indicated several specific locations of importance. Although why these locations were important eluded them at the time. In one of David's organized photo books, investigators found a photo of a very familiar octagonal barn, further confirming David's connections to the Blackburns. Finally, police in Ontario had what they needed to issue a Canada-wide warrant for David's arrest. On the other side of Canada, Over 4,000 kilometers away from the octagonal barn in Caledon, Ontario, a nightmare was unfolding in British Columbia. On the afternoon of June 29, 1992, in the Kitsilano area of Vancouver, a woman burst out of the back door of a clothing store and into an alleyway. She was naked, her wrists bound tightly by twine, as she took off running, barefoot and screaming her feet slapping the pavement she was running so hard. The woman had just been brutally attacked and raped, and by sheer luck, escaped when the sound of the front door of the store distracted her attacker. But a rapist had only just begun his spree of terror. It was David Snow, now, in British Columbia. Only four days later, on July 3rd, David abducted a female employee at a photography lab in downtown Vancouver just as she ended her shift. At gunpoint, he marched the 21-year-old across the 2nd narrowest Bridge, connecting downtown and North Vancouver without a single soul noticing. At least if they had, they didn't intervene. Once across the bridge, David led his hostage ominously into the woods to a campsite off the Trans-Canada Highway. What the woman experienced next was a horrifying and humiliating nightmare, a nightmare with no end in sight. Over the next several days, she was kept bound and naked at David's campsite, surrounded by bottles of human waste and garbage, while being sexually assaulted, sometimes as often as four times a day. To keep her compliant, she was regularly terrorized beaten and positioned in painful ways, threatened by a parade of guns. How long did he intend on keeping her there? Would he ever let her go alive? In the end, David wasn't satisfied by capturing and torturing just one woman. He needed more, and so on July 11th, he made his next move. This time, he didn't wait for his victim's shift to end when he entered the video store in North Vancouver. Working inside was a 19-year-old girl and her male boss. After revealing his gun to them, David announced the store was being robbed and restrained the boss. He then emptied all the cash out of the register and forced the 19-year-old out the store and into her own car, a 1975 Volkswagen Beetle, directing her to drive as he sat in the passenger seat. He planned on taking her to his campsite where the other woman was still bound to a tree. But that wouldn't be their last stop. It was time to move his camp to a different location. Because for what he intended to do, he needed even more privacy. Tensions ran high with the RCMP as news of the last abduction spread like wildfire. Officers knew they were dealing with a sinister and cunning serial sexual predator, and time was of the essence. They believed there was only one reason someone would abduct a woman after a robbery, and that was to commit heinous sexual acts in private. Mere hours after the girl was kidnapped, two RCMP patrolmen set out to find her and her captor. The officers' intuition led them to a secluded area near North Vancouver. A location where a wanted criminal could easily disappear into the thick forested areas of Mount Seymour. And by some sort of miracle, their hunch turned out to be right. Their relentless search brought them near the community of Deep Cove, where they stumbled across the missing girl's Volkswagen. But there was no sign of her, until suddenly, a bone-chilling scream echoed through the silence of the forest. With adrenaline coursing through their veins, the officers took off running into the dense bush toward the direction of the cry. Uncertain about what they would find, they pressed on until they suddenly found the source of the screams. A woman gagged and tied to a tree, the 19-year-old girl from the video store who'd just been abducted. But as the officers worked to free her, suddenly in the distance, another cry rang out. It was then that they realized they were dealing with more than one victim in the woods, and possibly a perpetrator lurking somewhere in the forest, possibly armed. They needed to find the other victim fast. Following the screams, they found the other victim, also gagged and bound to a tree. By that point, she'd been with her captor for nine days, and the horrors she'd experienced were written all over her haunted, vacant face. With the two victims safely recovered, it was now time to find the man responsible. And to do that, they needed to execute the most massive manhunt in Vancouver's history. Helicopters, police dogs, and infrared searched the entire area with communities alerted and even some homes evacuated. While roadblocks were set up, manpower from every nearby resource was routed to the Mount Seymour area to join in the search. Only one police patrol car was asked to remain in the city while the others pursued the fugitive, but it was this lone car that would respond to the next call. Pete Cross and Constable Woodlock were two of the RCMP officers on duty that night. During their shift that same night, an alarm went off at the Bridge House restaurant in North Vancouver. Dahlia Gelino, a 58-year-old grandmother, had just closed up for the night. Because Dahlia was the last employee to leave that night, she armed the security system and began locking the French doors at the back of the restaurant, when suddenly she felt something press against the back of her skull. A man holding a gun, now forcing her through the back doors she'd just locked. Although the alarm went off, David simply demanded Dahlia to call and cancel it, but officers were already on their way. What awaited the officers behind that restaurant was later described by Dahlia as her own personal World War III. Constable Woodcock went in one direction around the building, while Pete took the other way. Led by flashlight, he scouted the back of the restaurant and tried the French doors, but they were locked. And then... A shed behind the restaurant caught his attention. As he went around the outbuilding, the beam of his flashlight revealed a horrifying scene, one that would haunt him for years. On the ground was a woman, half naked, with a plastic bag over her head, while a man in dark clothes loomed over her, twisting a plant hanger wire around her throat. Immediately, Pete drew his gun and announced his presence. That's when David released Dahlia and fled into the dark. As Pete chased after him, shouting for him to stop, David tripped and landed face-first into the gravel. Pete followed, crashing down on top of him. After grappling for a bit, Pete finally managed to get David restrained and handcuffed. When Pete rolled the man over onto his back to see his face, he asked him, Are you the one we're looking for? David responded, I think so. He was the man they'd been looking for, and also the fugitive the entire country had been looking for as well. After being rescued within seconds of her life, Dahlia was hospitalized for her injuries, where she went in and out of consciousness. Although Dahlia's physical wounds would eventually heal, it was clear that recovering from the psychological trauma of her experience would be a much longer and more challenging process. After David Snow was taken into custody, his urge to brag about his crimes in jail ultimately led to his own undoing. To one inmate he boasted that he'd murdered an elderly couple in Toronto, taking pride in sharing all the grisly details how he'd sexually assaulted Nancy and strangled her, how he'd placed a bag over Ian's head to finish him off. It was clear he took a sadistic pleasure in recounting what he'd done, but the man he gloated to ended up becoming a witness, providing key evidence, further strengthening the case against him. Along with the new testimony, police found missing guns in David's possession, linking him to the house hermit crimes. They also found the camera equipment belonging to Ian Blackburn. But most damning of all was the blood found on the tissue in the Blackburn's car, which matched none other than David Snow. On September 11, 1992, David was found guilty of his crimes in Vancouver. Several months later, in March of 1993, David was declared a dangerous offender, which meant he could only be released from prison if he could prove he was no longer a threat to society. David was later convicted of the Blackburns' murders in 1997, which provided some justice for their loved ones. However, justice remained elusive for other possible victims of David, such as Caroline Case, who went missing in 1991. Evidence would later reveal that David had stayed with his mother who lived close to Caroline's antique shop on the night she disappeared. Caroline's remains were eventually found 500 yards from her abandoned station wagon. Caroline's sister made a plea for justice in a 1993 issue of the Maclean's Canada's National Currents Affairs magazine. To date, the plea has gone unanswered. In the end, David's possible victim list Turned out to be longer than previously thought, which included the mysterious death of an elderly man whose antique chair David had acquired. David had also obtained the rights to sell the man's properties following his death. Fortuitous circumstances for a man with a fixation on antiques and a willingness to murder. Perhaps even more mysteriously, police found a hand-drawn map in David's Orangeville home, which led to the discovery of several additional bodies, crimes possibly dating as far back as 1977. However, police never officially connected them to David. The reasons why remains unknown. As of the beginning of 2023, David remains unable to convince the Crown he's no longer a threat to society. Since being in prison, David's been diagnosed with a litany of disorders including paraphilia, sexual sadism, preoccupation with anal intercourse, antisocial personality, narcissistic personality disorder, and erectile dysfunction. David's lack of empathy led to the brutal murder of at least two people and potentially more. The impact of his actions forever altered the lives of four of his known surviving victims. Dahlia, the last victim David attacked before his arrest, was deeply traumatized by her experience and later shared her story through lectures. But despite the trauma these women suffered, their resilience serves as a testament to the enduring human spirit in the face of unimaginable horrors. And while David may never fully comprehend the extent of the damage he caused, the survivors continue to heal and move forward, inspiring others with their courage and perseverance. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also... By checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening.